Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, welcome all to today's full virtual committee. It's a full committee hearing, fully virtual as well, uh, on nominations. Today we have five distinguished nominees, including Mr. Eric Paul Bethel of Florida to be ambassador to the Republic of Panama, and Mr. Jonathan Pratt of California to be ambassador to the Republic of Djibouti, Ms. Barbara Hale Thornhill of California to be ambassador to the Republic of Singapore, uh, Mr. Thomas Laszlo Vida of Arizona to be ambassador to the Union of Burma, and the Honorable Kenneth Weinstein of the District of Columbia to be ambassador to Japan. Uh, congratulations to all of you and your families on your nominations and your willingness to serve. Thank you for being here today. We have a couple people who make, wish to make some introductions. Uh, I will first turn it over to a distinguished member of the United States Senate, uh, our colleague, former colleague, but uh, nonetheless, distinguished, continued honor to have uh, Senator Lieberman with us. Mr. Weinstein has a uh, guest, obviously, is that thing, Senator Joe Lieberman from Connecticut, served in this body from 1989 to 2013. Senator Lieberman, the floor is yours. Uh, Senator Gardner, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm really excited to see my friend Senator If I could just uh, interrupt real quick, if you're not speaking, if you could uh, hit the mute button, that would be great. Please continue, Senator Lieberman. Uh, okay. Thanks. Well, I'm honored to introduce uh, uh, Ken Weinstein to this committee as the president's nominee to be ambassador to Japan. Uh, as you know, uh, it's been more than a year since the U.S. has had an ambassador uh, in Japan. This is a, a critical uh, bipartisan relationship for a long time, bi bipartisan and bilateral uh, for a long time. And this year is a, is a particularly important year with everything going on with COVID-19, uh, with uh, the increasing uh, tensions between U.S. and China, and of course our, our continuing concerns about North Korea. So having an ambassador from the U.S. in Tokyo uh, to strengthen this uh, critical bipartisan relationship couldn't be more urgent. And frankly, I can't think of a better nominee than Ken Weinstein, he, he's uh, extremely prepared to take on this responsibility uh, by his own background in uh, US-China studies and relations. As you know, he's headed the Hudson uh, Institute and uh, through that has developed uh, not only a great knowledge of the US-Japanese relationship, but uh, very deep uh, friendships and trusting relationships within Japan, both in the government and in the business community, and his uh, nomination has been uh, broadly applauded uh, within Japan, and I know they're really hoping, they're actually anxious for him to arrive. It's also engendered um, impressive and, and in these days unique uh, response uh, here in the United States, uh, really across the board. When, when uh, Ken was first nominated by President Trump, among the people who were uh, who supported him, were uh, Senators Tom Cotton and uh, Sheldon Whitehouse. Uh, Kay Cole James, who is the president of the uh, Heritage uh, Foundation, and David Harris, president of the American Jewish Committee. And uh, in the last week or two, uh, about fifty, uh, <laughs> what I've come to know is called formers, former. Uh, uh, people in uh, public service in Washington sent a letter to your committee, uh, Chairman Gardner, uh, uh, endorsing Ken 
and uh, urging his confirmation uh, soon. And it was really a remarkable group that included, and again, very broad, very experienced, very involved in U.S.-Japanese relationships, uh, including two former vice presidents, um, Mondale and Quayle. I can't resist saying one almost former vice president, Lieberman, and, uh, um, and national security advisors, Hadley and McMaster, uh, directors of national intelligence, Blair and Coates, ambassador Nikki Haley, and a lot of uh, others as well. And they all agree, and this summarizes, that, that Ken's foreign policy, expertise, experience, and his personal temperament will make him a superb ambassador to Japan. I want to say in conclusion very briefly that uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled with this nomination and really thrilled to have the chance to speak briefly uh, to your committee because I, I not only know Ken through the Hudson uh, Institute, uh, which I've had relations with for a long time, and in the years since uh, I left the center for the last five or six years, I've, I've actually co-chaired a group out of the Hudson Institute, which is a, a bipartisan commission on biodefense uh, with uh, Tom Ridge, the former and first secretary of Homeland Security. But uh, beyond that, I know Ken personally. Uh, he's a friend. We uh, During my years in Washington, we went to the uh, same synagogue together, the Georgetown uh, Synagogue. Uh, his uh, family and mine have become friendly. He has a wonderful wife, Amy, and three uh, extraordinarily gifted, warm, interested children. So this is a, a person of real honor and integrity who meets people well, uh, who is a, a, a real American patriot based on his own life story, and also is uh, devoted uh, to strengthening uh, U.S.-Japanese relations. So uh, again, I thank you for holding this hearing, for giving me the opportunity to introduce Ken, and needless to say, along with the others who wrote that letter a short while ago, I urge you to confirm him uh, and send him to Tokyo as soon as possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Lieberman, and thank you again for returning and joining us. I greatly appreciate your uh, comments today and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you in person and when we're able to do so again soon. Thank you, Senator Lieberman. Thank you. I'm going to make a few brief comments and I'll turn it over to Senator Merkley uh, about the nominees this morning. Obviously, there are three nominees, uh, Ms. Thornhill, uh, Mr. Vida, and uh, Mr. Weinstein uh, to visit with about our work in Asia. Uh, this committee has worked successfully on the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, the legislation passed with bipartisan support unanimously. Uh, several years ago to create that first-time generational strategy as it relates to China uh, and the Indo-Pacific uh, built on three pillars, uh, economy, security, rule of law, democracy, and human rights. Uh, that legislation has set the framework for the work that we do in things like the Defense Authorization Act with the Pacific De Deterrence Initiative. So I very much look forward to hearing how uh, the, uh, the the nominees today will be able to implement, utilize the tools and the full array of opportunities that the Asia Reassurance Act has provided uh, in their duties they'll be carrying out in Burma, Japan, and Singapore, and certainly to Djibouti and Panama. Uh, we know the concerns that uh, uh, have been expressed uh, universally uh, with regards to China and how that Asia Reassurance Initiative Act can affect uh, our work uh, even beyond the free and open Indo-Pacific. So uh, very much appreciate all of your uh, all of your willingness to serve. Uh, the families who are joining us on the Zoom, welcome. 
and know that we appreciate uh, you being here today. Uh, Senator Merkley, I will turn it over to you if you would like to make a few comments. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the nominees for your willingness to serve. I'm pleased that even amidst the disruptions to normal Senate business, we're able to move forward and consider ambassadorial nominees to key countries. Each of the nominees would oversee critical bilateral relationships touching on key challenges such as economic development, human rights, climate chaos, military cooperation. All of them would have some role to play in navigating China's various challenges to U.S. leadership in the world. Some of these nominees would represent the United States and countries that are regional leaders in Asia and are crucial to the implementation of our Indo-Pacific policy. Their work and influence would be instrumental in asserting U.S. leadership in Asia. If confirmed, they would assume leadership roles during a global pandemic that has killed well, 700,000 people around the world, devastating the global economy, giving rise to tremendous global health and humanitarian needs. It's exacerbated the risk of human rights abuse and violent conflict and harmed many of the world's most vulnerable people. And I look forward to hearing from each of you about your vision for strengthening the United States ties with these countries and advancing U.S. policy leadership. Thank you, Senator Merkley, and uh, appreciate it. I know Senator Cardin was on the call as well, but if you don't mind, unless anybody else wishes to jump in here, I will go ahead and turn it over to uh, the, the nominees today. Uh, I would kindly ask that you limit your verbal remarks to no more than five minutes and your full written statements, of course, will be made a part of the record. This is a little bit of the honor system here uh, because the, the time clock, the shot clock doesn't necessarily display properly or at all in this case. So please keep your uh, comments to five minutes. Uh, we'll get your full record, your full statement into the record. And we'll begin with, uh, with uh, Mr. Bethel. Uh, and then we will turn, of course, to Mr. Pratt, followed uh, by Ms. Thornhill, uh, then Mr. Vida, and then, of course, uh, Ken Weinstein. So thank you very much, Mr. Bethel. You may begin. Thank you, Senator. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Chairman, uh, ranking members, uh, ranking member and, and distinguished members of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee, uh, it's a great privilege uh, to appear before you here today. And I'm honored that the president nominated me to serve as ambassador to Panama. And I'm grateful for his support and for the support of Secretary Pompeo. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge my wife, Michelle, and my children, Anna Christina, Nicholas, and Francisca, as well as my mother, Diana, who is an emigre uh, to the United States from Cuba, uh, and also a, um, a local hire at the uh, U.S. Embassy in Havana uh, in the 1950s. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge my late father, Paul Bethel, uh, who spent a career in public service with the State Department. His legacy is critical to me being with you here uh, today. I'm especially grateful to have my wife, Michelle, uh, my, uh, Michelle in my life and for her continued support uh, of my desire to, to serve our nation. And this is a tremendous privilege for me, and I can't think of a greater honor than to serve our country in Panama. My most recent experience uh, was representing the U.S. at the World Bank, a position for which I was confirmed by the Senate in 2018. And previously, for more than two decades, I worked at the intersection of finance and emerging markets. I've lived and worked in both Latin America and in Asia. I speak Spanish, I speak Mandarin, I speak Portuguese. If confirmed, I hope to utilize all of my experiences and skills to promote the mission uh, of the State Department and to advance the interests of the United States. Now, um, our relationship with Panama is one of, of great importance. For decades, Panama has been an enduring partner of the U.S., and Panamanians share our commitment to democracy, to human rights, and to free markets. 
And if confirmed, I'll work assiduously with the Panamanian government and its people to deepen the relationship with the United States, given our shared history. I'm also aware, notwithstanding Panama's relative economic and political stability, that there are issues of concern. Transnational crime, inequality, and corruption pose an enduring challenge uh, to the immense potential of Panama. And if confirmed, I aspire to foster greater cooperation and work constructively with the Panamanian government and its people to address these issues. And if confirmed, I'd also seek to leverage the capabilities of all U.S. stakeholders so that our capacity can be used most productively to advance our nation's foreign policy interests. I'll seek to work with Panama to further U.S. priorities, such as safeguarding our significant expat population, promoting investment opportunities for U.S. businesses, and enhancing the integrity of our interconnected financial and banking systems. And finally, if confirmed as ambassador to Panama, I'll work closely with the members of this committee and its staff and with other members of Congress to perform my responsibilities as a faithful representative of the United States and the American people. So Chairman, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you uh, and other members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bethel. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, Mr. Pratt, we'll turn to you. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, Mr. Chairman, ranking member and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to come before you as the president's nominee to be the next United States ambassador to the Republic of Djibouti. I'm grateful to the president and the secretary of state for their confidence in me. If confirmed, I will work with this committee and the Congress to advance our country's interests in Djibouti. Mr. Chairman, my experience in Africa began as a Peace Corps volunteer in Guinea-Bissau 25 years ago. In the course of my Foreign Service career, I have participated in American efforts to resolve conflicts in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and in the Sudan. I know that leading an embassy is a tremendous responsibility. If confirmed, I carry with me my experience as Deputy Chief of Mission at our embassy in Pakistan, where I helped lead one of our largest overseas interagency teams including colleagues from the armed services. Throughout my career, helping develop the strength and effectiveness of the State Department and the Foreign Service has been a priority of mine. Please know that if it confirmed, I'm committed to supporting the development of my institution and my colleagues, including the growth of a more diverse core of professionals and leaders that truly reflects the strength and diversity of our great nation. Over the last five years, Djibouti's economy has grown more than 5% per year, and the country is making sizable investments in its shipping, energy, and information technology sectors. If confirmed, I will work to build on the success of the current ambassador to expand access for American companies and to ensure they are able to compete on a level playing field. Since 2002, Djibouti has hosted the only enduring U.S. military installation in Africa at Camp Lemonnier. Along with Chabali Airfield, Camp Lemonnier is a crucial platform for our armed forces, who are working to promote security throughout the region. They are now on the front lines of our great power competition with China, which in 2017 opened its first foreign military base in Djibouti. Ensuring the long-term viability of American military installations in Djibouti is a national security priority. And if confirmed, I commit to extending my full support to our esteemed military colleagues who are based there. We have a broad-based security partnership with the government of Djibouti, 
The United States has helped train and equip Djiboutian peacekeeping troops deployed with the African Union mission to Somalia. The United States has also supported President Omar Gela's effort to facilitate reconciliation between Somalia and Somaliland. If confirmed, I will continue to support these joint initiatives, which are vital to the security of the Djiboutian and American people. Mr. Chairman, it's a great honor to sit here before you today. My maternal grandparents were Italian immigrants, and my mother was the first in her family to attend university here, later becoming a public school teacher and psychologist. My paternal grandfather contributed to our success in World War II as an engineer building aircraft engines. My father served in the US Navy while studying nuclear medicine at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. It has been an honor to walk in their footsteps and dedicate my own life to public service. My wife, Bridget Lines, is also a Foreign Service Officer. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you for considering my nomination. Thank you, Mr. Pratt, uh, and thanks to all those you mentioned uh, in your statement uh, supporting you. Uh, Ms. Thornhill, welcome to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, you may begin with your statement. And members of the committee, it's my honor and privilege to appear before you as President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to Singapore. I am grateful for the faith and confidence that President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo have shown in me. If I may, I would like to introduce my family and friends that are important in my life. My son, Hale. My new daughter, Kelly. Odie Nawabi, who is like a second son to me. My cousins, Fred and Fabian Thornhill. My longtime colleague, Rosie Siegel. Janet Ramirez and Evelyn Mangalette. Thank you. I come from a loving family in North Carolina, long known for its involvement in healthcare and charitable work. My mother, a pediatrician, was one of the first women to go to Duke Medical School. And my father, an ENT, invented the procedure known as a stapedectomy, an operation that led to the cochlear implant, a device that has helped hundreds of thousands of people here again. But more than his skill as a surgeon, it was my father's commitment to treating underdeserved people and providing them with blessings that we so often take for granted that inspires me even now and motivates me every day. My professional calling has not been medicine, however, but creating and succeeding in business. While at George Washington, I started an importing company selling grass cloth and silk wall covering from Korea and Japan to hotels and stores. The success of my first company led me to expand and create a design firm, which managed many multi-complex projects from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to Narita Hotel in Japan, to the World Clubs in Tokyo Airport, to Disney's five-star Maricosta Hotel in Hong Kong. The United States and Singapore respect the rule of law and have many shared values, including diversity, transparency, meritocracy, and innovation. Singapore has been very responsive and transparent with its efforts to counter the spread of the coronavirus. So it's no surprise that US and Singapore have collaborated and worked closely together on it. For more than half a century, the United States and Singapore have forged an enduring relationship based on four essential principles. One, 
Singapore is a vital economic partner for the U.S. The first bilateral free trade agreement that the U.S. signed with an Asian country was Singapore in January 2004. In 2018, we had a trade surplus in goods and services which totaled more than $18 billion. There are more than 4,500 companies in Singapore supporting over 200,000 jobs in the U.S. Number two, Singapore is one of America's strongest defense partners in the region. This bilateral defense partnership bedrock is built on a 1990 Memorandum of Understanding and other agreements that allow U.S. military access to Singapore bases, airfields, and ports. Singapore recently purchased four F-35B fighters. Singapore has the largest permanent foreign military training presence in the United States, with over a thousand Singaporean Air Force people here at one time. Our president made it crystal clear that Singapore is a priority for our country. By signing the renewal of the 1990 MOU with Prime Minister Lee in 2019. Number three, our country has a robust law enforcement and homeland security partnership that works together on economy, smart cities, responsible and secure 5G implementation to strengthen our security cooperation. And finally, our people to people ties. With the focus on human rights that is near and dear to my heart, let me share why. I had the honor to work with Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta in 1994, lending an American heart and hands to the important work with children in orphanage and to the destitute and dying in the hospice known as the home of the pure heart. I participated in Operation Smile missions in Vietnam, Brazil, China, and elsewhere. These missions gave me an opportunity to see how one operation, one $250 operation, changed a life, a family, and a village. In the United States, I've worked with the Boy Scouts of America that have provided leadership to over 20,000 underprivileged adolescents. I also worked with the Children's Institute in Los Angeles to provide basic need and psychological counseling to over 28,000 children who have been abused and suffered other horrible traumas. My social work experience motivates my interest in addressing human rights. Even though Singapore has moved from Tier 2 to Tier 1, I will work closely with the Singaporeans on combating human trafficking if confirmed as ambassador. If I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as ambassador, I promise you that I will be a steward of all aspects of the relationship. I will be a vocal proponent for the United States, our views on inclusiveness, our support for democracy, and form one of the most important cherished partners in the world, Singapore. Chairman Garner and members of the committee, given my nomination to your serious consideration, Thank you, Ms. Thornhill. Thank you very much for the testament that, that statement. Uh, our next uh, nominee, uh, Mr. Thomas Laszlo Vida of Arizona, uh, nominated to be the ambassador to the Union of Burma. Mr. Vida, please proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, ranking member, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to be, appear before you today. I'm honored to be the president's nominee to be the U.S. ambassador to Burma, and thank him for sending my name forward for consideration. 
I also thank Secretary Pompeo for his support. I also want to express my deep gratitude to my wife, Amy Sebas, and our two daughters, Bette and Emily, for their support and their sacrifice. They have repeatedly changed jobs, changed schools, and been distant from family and friends so we could serve our country abroad. They've been outstanding representatives of the United States and have truly served their country. I would also like to acknowledge my parents who came to the United States as penniless refugees from Hungary, escaping war and communism and helped build a life for me here in this country. Since 1991, I have had the privilege of serving as a U.S. diplomat, protecting the welfare of American citizens and advancing U.S. interests and values. If confirmed, I look forward to continuing the opportunity to pursue that work in Burma, a country whose people we have supported for decades in their efforts to overcome harsh military rule and achieve true democracy. I served as Deputy Chief of Mission Rangoon from 2008 to 2011 and worked to support the early stages of the opening in Burma that led to the country's first credible national elections in over 50 years in 2015. Since that time, the civilian government has made important progress in a number of areas, consolidating some reforms, combating transnational crime, fighting corruption, and opening Burma's economy. However, the ongoing marginalization of ethnic groups, violence in ethnic regions, and the involvement of the Burmese military in the economy and in politics have underscored that meaningful change in Burma remains an ongoing effort. This was never more clear than when the Burmese military committed horrendous atrocities, including ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya community in August of 2017. The United States has repeatedly expressed our deep concern about the horrific violence against Rohingya and other human rights abuses. We have matched this concern with action. With thanks to Congress, we are the leading donor of humanitarian assistance in response to the Rakhine State crisis, providing more than $951 million to date. We are also a leading voice in pushing for justice for victims and accountability for those responsible for atrocities, including by sanctioning top Burmese military officials. We must continue efforts to change the military's behavior and promote justice and accountability. We must also continue to push Burma to create conditions for the safe, dignified, voluntary, and sustainable return of refugees and displaced persons. It is also critical that we support Burma's efforts to resist malign foreign influences and challenges to its sovereignty by helping those in Burma who are pushing back on unfair investment practices and deals that provide little benefit to host communities. I also want to highlight the importance of Burma's upcoming national election in November and acknowledge the significant funding that Congress has provided to support a free and fair vote. In light of Burma's enormous challenges and our, and our own interest in the country's democratic and free market development, U.S. engagement is essential to advancing reform and helping Burma protect its autonomy. If confirmed, I look forward to representing the United States and working with the people of Burma to achieve the peace and prosperity they deserve. Thank you again for your consideration. Thank you, Mr. Vida. Uh, and next, we will turn to the nominee to be ambassador to Japan, Mr. Ken Weinstein. Thank you very much. Uh, you may proceed. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member. I'm profoundly honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. I should note I am incredibly touched by the introduction by my friend, a great public servant, Senator Joe Lieberman. I'm wondering why I'm even bothering testifying after those remarks. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'd like to offer heartfelt gratitude to the President, to Vice President Pence, and to Secretary Pompeo, as well as to the officers at State and Mission Japan. I would not be here today were it not for my inspiration and closest friend, my wife, Amy Kaufman. Our three children, Raina, Harry, and Eden, are our pride and joy. Hudson Institute, which I head as an extraordinary organization, privileged to work with so many members of this committee on both sides of the aisle. I'm deeply grateful to my colleagues and our trustees 
especially Sarah May Stern and Wally Stern. Today, however, I think of those who have guided me in life, uh, most especially those who are no longer with us, and in particular, my parents, who dedicated their lives to serving others. Dad, a physician in Brooklyn, made house calls until he was in his 70s. My mom, a refugee from Nazi Germany, taught in public schools in underserved communities. Mom knew totalitarianism firsthand and cherished the promise of America. She imbued this love in her students and in her five sons. And it is this dedication to service and love of country that I will bring with me to Tokyo. As a scholar and think tank leader, I built relations of trust with leaders in Japan and at home. And I'm deeply grateful that so many distinguished former officials support my nomination. The US-Japan relationship is extraordinarily close, as we can see by the friendship and frequent communication between Prime Minister Abe and President Trump. The U.S.-Japan alliance is the cornerstone of peace, security, and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific. Japan hosts more American military than any other ally in key assets. Japan's national defense program guidelines are aligned with our national security and our national defense strategy, and we share a vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific, a concept developed by Prime Minister Abe and then adapted by President Trump. If confirmed, I will encourage Japan to shoulder even greater responsibility in the face of the significant security challenges we face together in Northeast Asia. And it is essential that we leverage our joint capabilities through our allies and partners in line with the landmark Asia Reassurance Initiative. And I uh, commend the chairman and this committee for shepherding this legislation through. Our two countries represent nearly 30% of global GDP. And if confirmed, I hope to work towards a comprehensive bilateral trade agreement while expanding economic cooperation in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. Together, we pursue new frontiers in 5G, quantum, and AI, and Japan is our lead partner in the U.S.-led effort to send humans back to the moon. The trust embedded in the alliance, an alliance of strong and proud democracies, is critical to envisioning and realizing a secure post-pandemic world. And humanity as a whole looks to the 2020 plus one Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games in what should be a celebration of our collective triumph over COVID-19. In conclusion, I would like to thank the committee for your consideration of my nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you and your talented teams and our talented teams in uh, Washington and at Mission Japan to advance our national interests collaboration with Japan. Thank you very much. And thank you, Mr. Weinstein. And in the interest of making sure that we uh, get as many people asking questions as possible, I will reserve my time uh, and turn to Senator Merkley if you would like to begin with your questions. Okay, well, very good. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll jump right in and, and first, uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Bethel, I'd like to have you give some sense of how we can combat the money laundering challenge that has been repeatedly identified in association with Panama. Thank you, Senator. Um, the, the issue uh, obviously involves SATIF. Uh, Panama's back on the gray list. Uh, they were on the gray list earlier, uh, but due to recent events, uh, they were taken off. Uh, there are a number of things that, that we can do uh, to help Panama get off uh, of the gray list. And I think this is one of President Cortizo's uh, campaign uh, promises or platforms. Uh, and uh, to the extent uh, that uh, um, that we can, and if I'm confirmed, 
I look forward to working with Panama and with different aspects of the U.S. government, whether it's Treasury's uh, Office of Technical Assistance uh, or, or others, uh, to help uh, Panama get off the gray list. Uh, and I think getting off the gray list will do, will do a couple of things. It will bring in uh, um, serious capital to Panama, whether it's from Fidelity or, or uh, J.P. Morgan and so forth. Uh, and it'll also create jobs in Panama and create an enabling environment uh, that will allow the country to to move beyond uh, where it is today uh, and to and to benefit. Well, uh, thank you. I just want to emphasize that with your background in, in finance, international banking, uh, you can bring a, a lot of um, of uh, policy expertise to bear on something that uh, is very related to terrorist financing, drug financing, and, and therefore affecting the quality of life in many ways. So, uh, thank yes, you. Thank you. I wanted to uh, turn to uh, Mr. Pratt, and uh, our relationship with Djibouti is heavily focused on security assistance. If you could increase and strengthen the partnership in, in other dimensions, what dimension would you really emphasize? Oh, thank you, Senator. Um, as you as you said, uh, we do have a very strong security relationship, and I, I hope to build on that. But I also hope to help develop our economic relationship with the country. Our, our current ambassador there has done a very good job of helping U.S. companies get into the market, uh, especially in the energy and food processing sectors. Um, so I will do continue to do everything possible to build up our economic relationship with that country recognizing that the United States uh, offers a different model of economic engagement than, than China does. Um, we're often the gold standard for, for uh, business development. So we can tell in many places it is engaged in what is sometimes referred to as debt trap financing. Um, they have a lot of projects going in Djibouti. Uh, uh, do you have a sense of how America weighs in? on the, that relationship between China and Djibouti? Thank you, Mr. Senator. We are concerned uh, about the over a billion dollars that um, Djibouti currently has to China. China was able to offer uh, a lot of assistance in, in building up infrastructure that's been very important to Djibouti, including the, the railway, uh, the road, and the water pipeline from uh, Ethiopia. But that uh, that very large debt service is something that's uh, of concern. And um, I plan to explore, and I know that the State Department is already exploring, the Debt Sustainability Initiative to help Djibouti, as it is helping other countries, uh, look at the debt burden that it's surfacing, uh, servicing, sorry, and, and how to make that more sustainable uh, over the long term. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Thornhill, you have an extensive uh, business uh, background, an extensive philanthropic background. What do you feel in your life history prepares you for the complex relationship we have with Singapore? Thank you for the question. Uh, I've had the privilege of working from Saudi Arabia to Japan and working in these and uh, other countries around the world, but working um, in the several countries as a single woman owning a business was a challenge, and I had to use um, determination, diplomacy, um, listening a great deal, understanding, because in, uh, when I stepped into the organization in Japan, 
I immediately realized there was resentment for a female-owned business. There was a place for me. So I realized everything to, in order to achieve my project that I would have to use even more determination and understanding so it would, it would be finished on time, on budget. I'm pleased to say that doing this work and listening across the different cultures, we were able to complete a project under budget and in time. And the, uh, con con the contractor offered me, asked me to do his next project. So I feel that this diplomacy, this listening, this, as I say, two ears, one mouth, this understanding will help me in promoting new businesses also with Singapore. Because Singapore, as you know, started out as a malaria trading post, went into, manifest itself into the hub, international hub, then a hub for finance uh, around the world and business. It is one of the most respected places to do business. So hopefully I will be able to work with American businesses and American um, universities to bring new ideas to help uh, with their economy and investment in Singapore. Thank you. Uh, and I, there, there's one piece I wanted to ask you about, which is your, your background as a donor to Project Veritas. Uh, can you ex explain that to us? Uh, yes. Um, I think about eight years ago, a, a good friend of mine called me to come to her home and be supportive. She was having a difficulty. And I went to this party, I mean, dinner party late, um, participated, don donated money and left. And that was my first and my last um, interaction with Veritas. I only knew about um, the, uh, the founder walking across the border has been as a bin Laden. That's that is all I've dealt with. I mean, all I've ever connected with. So you you had said when you were asked about it before, being a woman, I was very concerned about anything that seems to expose or might not be the truth about abuse against women. What what I didn't understand what you were trying to say by, by that. I'm sorry, sir. We we lost the connection with you for a moment there. I'm sorry. You were previously quoted when you were asked about this as saying, being a woman, I was very concerned about anything that seems to expose but not be the truth about abuse against women. Uh, I, I think it sounded like, and it is an explanation of why you supported them, and I, I didn't really understand what you meant about that by that. Senator Merkley, your, your time has expired, but if Ms. Thornhill, if you could give a, a brief answer, Senator Merkley, you come back in a second round if you'd like to, to ask, but Ms. Thornhill, go ahead with a brief answer, then we can move on. Thank you. I was referring to the fact that certain countries that I worked, initially, there it was uh, women were looked upon as second-class citizens, and their position was not to have a, a female-owned business. So I realized then that I would have to work much harder and be more determined to achieve my goal. Um, and I feel that that has put me in a position of knowing how to deal with diplomacy and how to make things happen 
but in a very diplomatic way. And that is what I meant. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Merkley. And just a reminder, we're, we're five minutes uh, in the in the question and answer, and we can come back around uh, for a second round if, if people would like to do that. Senator Young, uh, I will turn to you. Can you can you see me? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. My apologies. Um, well, I'll just dive right in. Uh, Mr. Dayton. Um, okay, I just stepped in here and I, I regret Mr. Dayton was in the morning session and uh, I'll be submitting my, my answers to him. So, uh, Mr. Pratt. Um, Mr. Pratt. I think yes, Djibouti was, was brought up earlier and... Um, I'm concerned about the increase in, in, in China's presence there. Um, it's emerged as a base for the projection of Chinese influence uh, in the Horn of Africa and adjacent waters. Um, as a career diplomat with service in multiple African capitals, what's your assessment of the strategic implications of rising Chinese influence in Djibouti and throughout Africa? Thank you, Senator. Um, I know that this is something that the State Department is and the current ambassador is looking very closely at. Um, as I mentioned in my statement, China opened its first overseas military base in Djibouti in 2017. Um, since then, we've been working very closely with the government of Djibouti and with other international partners um, to make sure that uh, all of the countries that have uh, bases in Djibouti are playing by the same by the same rules. Um, and, uh, and respecting Djibouti's sovereignty. Um, so I, I plan to, to continue um, to, to look very closely at, at any concerning behavior um, and any objectives that China may have in, in the region. Um, I'm happy to report that the United States continues to have a, a really strong relationship with the government of Djibouti. I believe that we are the security partner of choice um, in that country and in the region. And obviously, we're helping to stabilize the Horn of Africa and, and Somalia. So I hope to build on those relationships and, and support our armed services. What should we do, sir, to uh, provide the African people with a counter narrative that, that highlights the long-term risks of dealing with China and the long-term benefits uh, of dealing with the United States and our partner nations uh, who, who share more of our values? Well, sir, I, I think we offer a different model uh, and frankly, a better model, a more transparent model. Um, China has offered uh, things to Djibouti that, that we weren't offering several years ago, uh, very large infrastructure uh, projects. Um, but the United States uh, offers um, many things economically in Djibouti right now that I believe we can continue to build on. Uh, my colleagues in the U.S. Agency for International Development are training Djiboutians. Um, we have a very large uh, jobs sector program, uh, which the government of Djibouti and the people of Djibouti appreciate very much. Um, we're working especially to improve services at their ports. Djibouti uh, has a very high quality deep water port that services the region, especially Ethiopia. And um, the people of Djibouti know that, that we are 
uh, there helping to train their workforce, engaging with their people. Uh, on our military installations and at our embassy, we em employ very large numbers of Jebushan people. Um, we have a very open and, and transparent relationship. And as I mentioned in my statement, we've been working very hard to bring U.S. companies into Djibouti, including in the energy and food processing sector. So I think there's a lot we can build on there. Well, I thank you, uh, sir, for your years of distinguished service. Um, I regret that uh, I have a conflict, Mr. Chairman, so I will yield back balance of my time. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator Cardin? Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. And let me thank all of our nominees for their willingness to serve our country. Uh, we appreciate it. These are challenging times to be involved in global democ uh, diplomacy. So thank you. And thanks to your families, because we know you can't do this without a supportive family. There's a common theme among all of the countries that are involved in today's hearing. One is the advancement of U.S. values as it relates to good governance, human rights, uh, and, and related issues. Each of these countries have challenges in different degree. The other common theme is the impact that China has on their relationship. Uh, China has been very aggressive in their investments in our own hemisphere, as well as their own region. And what impact is that having on U.S. security interests? So. For each of you, uh, these are areas of concern. Uh, I'm going to start first, if I might, Ms. Zervada, in regards to Burma, because there's, among all the countries, that country has its greatest challenge on human rights. And first of all, let me thank you for your career service. Uh, we appreciate that very much and your dedication. But with Burma, we have a unique challenge in that the country was moving in the right direction towards civilian uh, democracy. Uh, with free and fair elections, electing a leader, only to find the military usurp power back in that country, uh, and uh, very disappointing. And of course, we had the horrendous issues in regards to the Rohingya population. It still is a, is a major global human rights challenge. So just tell me briefly how you intend to advance uh, those issues under the environment that we now see in Burma uh, how we can get them back on track to the type of reforms that would lead to uh, a more democratic state. Thank you for that uh, for that uh, question, Senator. And and I agree with your assessment. Uh, Burma certainly suffers from significant challenges on governance and human rights. And it, I think the reality is that it is still coming out of a period of 50 years of very harsh military rule, where the where the military ride on repression uh, and absolutely squelching all dissent. Uh, there has been some progress. I think that's important to note, and, and you acknowledge that as well. Certainly, there's greater free press. There's more uh, activism among civil society. Uh, political parties are able to form. Uh, there was a, a relatively free and fair election in 15. We're headed for what we hope will be another one today. I think the importance for us in the United States is to really build on our comparative strengths in that country. So we have been seen rightly as the longstanding supporter of uh, the human rights and democracy activists in that country. Uh, we have, I think, tremendous influence in, in that regard. Uh, we have a very active assistance program, and for that we thank Congress, that is largely geared towards empowering civil society, working with political parties, building the, the institutions around uh, governance, and including with regard to the elections that are coming forward today. Uh, and I think uh, it's important that we remain actively engaged and present. Um, I think those who are working towards a better and brighter future in Burma 
look to the United States as their strongest advocate and their strongest allies. And uh, if I'm confirmed as ambassador, that would be a major priority for me is to help move the country along on what has uh, admittedly been a very difficult and challenging path towards democracy. And but yeah, you'll have you'll have friends here in, in this, this committee that will do everything we can to help you advance that agenda. If I can, let me turn to Mrs. Thornhill in regards to Singapore. One doesn't normally look at Singapore as a challenge on governance, but the 2019 Reporters Without Borders ranked Singapore 151st among 180 nations in its annual World Press Freedom Index behind neighbors such as Cambodia and Burma. So let me ask you what you will do to advance uh, human rights in a country that we have a very strong economic tie to, such as Singapore. Thank you for the question. Um, as I stated in my opening remark, Singapore, since the passage of the Prevention of Human Rights Trafficking in 2015, has made serious advances. They, in uh, November of 2019, they had their first conviction of two laborers. And this enabled them to go from tier two to tier one. They're making great strides to work hard on detection and more prosecutions. But, uh, if, if I was confirmed as ambassador, I would work with the Singaporean um, task force uh, in, human in human trafficking called TIP to see what we could do to increase the prosecutions and help on the victim identification system. I would just, I would just urge you to work also with Reporters Without Borders in regards to the, the, the way that they handled uh, free uh, speech in that country. Uh, it's a challenge. And uh, we recognize we have a strong economic tie. We recognize it's a relatively small country, but it has a major economic impact. Uh, they can do much better, and it's a difficult country for us to get uh, our Western values uh, from the point of view of protection of freedom of speech and democracy. So it's, it's just a country that needs uh, a, a strong U.S. presence on these issues. Don't be just misled by the economic uh, realities. I wanna ask one more question, if I might, Mr. Chairman, to Mr. Weinstein. First of all, uh, congratulations on getting such a widespread endorsement. So we're not gonna hold against you that you had Joe Lieberman for our committee. At, uh, we, we always enjoy his presence, but I think that does bode well for your diplomacy. If you can bring together these diverse views, um, uh, it's important. Japan is a critically important country to the United States. And yes, we're gonna have to deal with the relationship to strengthen, and we're moving in the right direction with Korea and Japan resolving their historic differences. But with the United States not in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade issues are one you mentioned, it was mentioned, we got to look for ways that we can strengthen the U.S. presence in that region using countries like Japan to help us because it's going to be important for the, uh, for the commerce on the China Seas as well as it will be for the economic tools used by China to try to influence the rules of, of engagement on, on trade. So uh, thank you for your willingness uh, to put yourself forward. Uh, I hope you can bring about diverse views in that region as you have in our political system here for your support. You can respond if you want and try to salvage Joe Lieberman. Well, thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, you know, it's the third of uh, five boys. You learn to be a bridge builder. And uh, I 
certainly did. I'd look in the in the Indo-Pacific region. I, I and thank you, uh, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, I think it's absolutely critical that we continue uh, the kind of uh, economic cooperation partnership that we've built. These whole of government approaches. Uh, uh, we've we've learned from the from the Japanese in a sense. We were more defense focused. They were more development focused. And now our, our approaches have merged. And we've now working on whole of government approaches to promote. Uh, uh, whether it be uh, energy security through the Japan-U.S. Uh, uh, energy partnership, whether it be through the uh, digital economy partnership, whether it be through the Mekong uh, energy partnership, uh, to work together to uh, uh, provide development assistance, to uh, facilitate our businesses uh, going into uh, countries to promote, uh, uh, to make sure that uh, China's Belt and Road uh, with its uh, um, confiscatory uh, debt burdens uh, with its uh, uh, telecommunication systems that are an extension of Chinese authoritarianism, the kind of authoritarianism we've seen in uh, Xinjiang and in Tibet, bringing these systems around the world through uh, Huawei and ZTE. These are fundamental dangers to uh, human rights uh, as China tries to export these models. So I really look forward to uh, deepening this, these kind of partnerships with Japan and also to trying to make further progress uh, on the trade issue with Japan, which is critical. Uh, clearly, uh, we've had uh, the uh, phase one agreement and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the digital agreement, but we really do need to go further, particularly uh, in the auto sector. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Senator. Well, thank you for the response. And, and uh, again, I really do applaud you for the, the endorsements. And it's always good to hear from Joe Wine. Joe Lieberman. Uh, Mr. Thank, thank you, Senator Gardin. And uh, Senator Shaheen. I know she's uh, she was with us earlier, Senator Shaheen. Are you there? Senator Kane, if you want to go, and we'll come back to Senator Shaheen uh, if uh, she still wishes that. Oh, actually, Senator Kane, do you mind if I yield? I see Senator Shaheen just came back. Yes. Up. Darn it, I was just not quite fast enough. There he is. I know. So who can hit the button fastest? Senator Shaheen. Beat you, Tim. Um, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of the um, nominees today for your willingness to consider these very important roles at a particularly challenging time in foreign policy in the world. I I'd like to start with you, Mr. Weinstein, um, because, as you know, uh, President Trump has um, said that he he thinks Japan should increase its financial contribution to keep U.S. troops in Japan. Um, as you know, also our presence there, our troop presence there is not welcomed by all Japanese. And so given this pressure and given the increased military threat posed by China in the region, what are the consequences of raising this issue with an ally on the front lines of China's aggression, while at the same time, we've got some of the economic challenges that you mentioned uh, in with Japan. What and, and what message would weakening our relationship with Japan send to China? Thank you, Senator, for the, uh, for the question. It's an important one. Uh, Japan and Japanese and communities in Japan play an incredibly important role in hosting uh, our armed forces, it is, uh, after all, the largest contingent of uh, uh, American servicemen and women uh, uh, based in any ally around the world, key assets, including the Seventh Fleet. 
Uh, so it, 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 it and and the burden falls disproportionately. It certainly falls disproportionately upon Okinawa, which is one uh, percent of uh, Japanese territory, has seventy percent of U.S. Uh, uh, sole uh, bases and half the troop presence. So, uh, but at the same time, as we engage in this uh, strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific, uh, all of us need to do more. Uh, the the uh, uh, we've seen China's increased aggressiveness uh, around the Senkaku Islands, uh, uh, where the, for over 100 days uh, they have uh, been sending vessels into Japanese uh, the territory Japan administers. Uh, so uh, I think that the important uh, role that I, I would seek to play as ambassador uh, on these issues would be to uh, stress the importance of the alliance, uh, stress the people-to-people -people exchanges, uh, note that we all need to do more, and uh, uh, and to just uh, uh, really um, make the case that uh, uh, we're doing more, Japan needs to do no more. It needs to do more. And Prime Minister Abe understands this. He understands this well. Japan has certainly significantly increased its purchases of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, military equ uh, equipment, uh, whether it be the F-35, uh, whether it be uh, the Hawkeye, whether it be the Global Hawk and the like. So. I think that I'm optimistic that we will come to some sort of a, uh, a fruitful conclusion uh, for these uh, host nation support uh, negotiations. Thank you. Well, I certainly agree with you about the threat that China poses. I think that's why our relationship with Japan is increasingly important. And we don't want to let any wedge get in between that relationship that's going to affect um, our security in the Pacific region. Uh, Ms. Thornhill. As you know, Singapore elected a record number of women to parliament during the last election. And um, as you, you talked about your business relationship as a woman and some of the challenges that that presented. So as you think about the challenges facing Singapore, how can you interact with some of those women in parliament to encourage them to address some of the issues um, the democracy issues raised by Senator Card and some of the other challenges facing Singapore. As, as a woman, um, I have been, I was very encouraged by this last election where 27 women were elected uh, to parliament. And uh, of course, even though she wasn't just elected, uh, Holly May, Holly May Yakum, who is the first female president of Singapore, has done an excellent job since 2017. So I feel that Singapore is opening up and allowing women to do more and to take a part in the government and in the ruling. Um, and may I also say that um, Cadet Chai just graduated from the U.S. Air Force as the first female uh, Singaporean cadet to graduate. So I just want to plug all these women doing things because I, I do, as you can tell, support women making roads for others and being, being supportive. And I feel that working with Singaporean and other like-minded societies, that I will be able to promote not only, you know, equal rights for all and our fundamental freedoms that we uh, of course, promoting America, but the importance of diversity and inclusiveness, because Singapore is a melting pot also, and they have made 
a great strides in everyone being Singaporean. And with that, it would, I, I would try to increase more diversity and more inclusiveness of women and other people that have not had equal treatment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Veda, um, understanding that you can't do much about the State Department's um, position on UNFPA, the United Nations um, Population Fund, still it is doing really excellent work in with the Rohingya communities in Burma and Bangladesh. In Cox's Bazaar, it has the trust of the most vulnerable populations who are affected by violence there. One of my staff members had a chance to visit there last year, and she came back with um, both horrific stories of the violence perpetrated against so many of those women, but also of the good work that UNFPA is doing. And as we think about how how we hold some of the people responsible for that violence accountable. Um, the witness that UNFPA is providing is going to be very important in collecting that information. And so I, I wonder if you would agree to commit to meeting at least with those representatives as you're trying to address some of those horrific issues around the genocide that's being perpetrated against Rohingya that has fallen disproportionately on women and girls. Senator, thank you for that uh, for that question and those comments. I, I had the opportunity to visit the Rohingya refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar myself in November 2017. So I was confronted personally and directly with the suffering that uh, that they had experienced and spoke to a number of them, many of them women. And I agree that uh, that many women suffered disproportionately and, ex and extremely during the atrocities undertaken by the Burmese military. I will say that I think as I noted in my comments, the United States is providing extraordinary levels of support for the Rohingya, primarily in Bangladesh, also in Burma, $951 million to date. And we're supporting a range of UN and other international organizations that are providing life-saving work, health, humanitarian assistance, education, sanitation, um, et cetera. The, United, the State Department, I should say, also has undertaken its own very significant documentation uh, process that has, uh, I think, underscored the severity of the of the gross violations of human rights that took place and we've shared those with a number of different domestic and international actors uh, i think as a, as ambassador my role would be to uh, keep an open mind and speak with anybody who can share share their perspectives and analysis on what's happening with regard to the rohingya and what's happening in burma and to help that shape my own perspectives and make policy recommendations back to washington i, I would like to just make a point of that commending Bangladesh. Uh, again, I visited the, the refugee camp there just for their uh, extraordinary hospitality and generosity in supporting, uh, in supporting the Rohingya, uh, but also just underscore that the onus really is on Burma in res resolving this crisis and creating the conditions necessary for those refugees to return safely in dignity and voluntarily. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate both of those comments and you're pointing at the um, willingness of Bangladesh to accept all of those refugees, I think, is important, particularly given the challenges that that country faces. Um, but that's why the international community needs to do more to pressure Burma to take back the Rohingya and treat them fairly and recognize not only their rights, but the rights of other Burmese citizens. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Senator Kane. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and to my colleagues. Senator Shaheen asked exactly the question that I was going to ask Mr. Weinstein to open uh, about the uh, special agreement with Japan uh, concerning Japan's payment for American military presence and how President Trump uh, has indicated that as that comes up for renegotiation, he would want more. Uh, both Senator Shaheen and I are members of the Armed Services Committee. Uh, the continuing presence of U.S. troops there, I think, is good for Japan, good for the United States, good for the region. Um, and we have both the uh, the agreement about compensation, but also the status of forces agreement uh, with Japan uh, concerning the conditions of American troops there. And both of those are always under some review. But I would just say that, uh, Mr. Weinstein, you, you have a very, very good background and a deep knowledge in these subjects. Um, these combined diplomacy uh, together with sort of a DOD uh, set of necessities. And I hope you'll keep not only the Foreign Relations Committee, but also the Armed Services Committee informed about the status of those discussions. Uh, Mr. Chair, this is an interesting group of five nominees because um, in each of the countries that are at issue here, the role of China is very, very important. It may not be a surprise for Burma with a border with China, Singapore, neighbor with China, Japan, a neighbor with China, but but Djibouti, the largest port in Africa, has been built with Chinese money in Djibouti. And in Panama, China has significant interest on both sides of the Panama Canal in the way that could uh, that could significantly affect U.S. interest there. So maybe I'll start with Mr. Bethel as you approach the position of potentially being our ambassador to Panama. How would you deal with this issue of increased Chinese investment support and how that might affect uh, U.S. interest there. Thank you, Senator. Um, when China switched its relationship, excuse me, when Panama switched its relationship from Taiwan to China uh, in 2017, they signed something like 45 uh, separate agreements with China. As you correctly mentioned, China and Hutchinson, known as Panama Ports, has concessions on both sides of the canal. China Land Bridge has a very large concession over on the Atlantic side, uh, and China's made great inroads uh, in, in Panama, and it's something for us to be aware of. The first thing I'd say is, is this. Um, we should welcome competition, uh, and we shouldn't be afraid of competition. However, and the caveat is, it's got to be in a level playing field where everybody plays by the rules. So um, I think it's important to, to bring in U.S. businesses uh, and to help strengthen institutions, uh, not just in Panama, but in other countries, to allow uh, uh, the, the rules to be played by everybody. Uh, and, and I think uh, you, can, you can say a lot of good things uh, about U.S. businesses, uh, but among them, at least by comparative standards, we do, we do things right. We follow the right environmental policies, social policies. Uh, uh, we, we uh, by and large, have a, a very good uh, uh, governance system. Uh, and so if I'm confirmed, what I'd like to do is to do two things, strengthen uh, the institutions, uh, work with the Panamanian people and the government to strengthen institutions, while at the same time uh, bringing U.S. businesses. Uh, and I think the combination of those two uh, would be uh, a good um, uh, contrast to other actors in the region, including China. I, um, that, that's, that is a good answer, and that is the right strategy. It's hard to do it in reality, 
um, but you stated the right strategy. I just noticed within the last 24 hours some news that was disturbing to me, which is uh, the U.S. has, I think, bent over backwards to try to accommodate Saudi Arabia, for example. And within the last 24 hours, there's been an announcement that the Saudis have reached a deal with China to help accelerate the Saudi nuclear program. Uh, we had before this committee within the last week, uh, Marshall Billingsley from the State Department, and we asked him in our interactions with Saudi Arabia around these energy issues, would we, would we expect that the Saudis would comply with sort of one, two, three agreement principles and, and non-enrichment principles? And he said, yes, the U.S. policy is still, we're, we're, we can work with the Saudis, but they would have to meet a gold standard for us to assist their civilian nuclear program. Yesterday is, well, China, we, maybe we'd rather deal with China because they're not going to have these high expectations. It would be great if we could insist upon a level playing field. Um, it would be great if we could insist upon high standards. Uh, one of the challenges with the U.S.-China relationship in each of these countries that you represent, and more generally, is uh, we can insist on the right standards, but if there's others who are willing to bend the standards, break them, have no standards, uh, Countries might find it in their short-term interest, not their long-term interest, in their short-term interest to go with the with the, the low bid um, that doesn't put expectations on them. And so I think this is, um, that's, that's my five minutes, but each of you will grapple with this program in significant ways, with, with this dilemma in very significant ways should you be confirmed. I, I, I see a lot of action with respect to China by the United States right now. I don't see a lot of coordination or strategy that connects those actions together. And I think that's a matter for our committee and for uh, to be in dialogue with the administration about. But anyway, congratulations to each of you. And Mr. Chair, I'll see it back to you. Thank you, Senator Kane. And I don't believe there are any further Democrat or Republican senators. Uh, Mr. Weinstein, uh, if I'm wrong, let me know uh, on this uh, at the committee. Mr. Weinstein, a question for you regarding regarding Japan. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we see North Korea's development of uh, continued development of a nuclear weapon program. There was public reporting that they uh, may have made some advancements in that uh, nuclear effort. But what would happen regionally, Japan as well as Korea and others, in your opinion, should North Korea uh, continue in its nuclear program, develop a uh, warhead capable of traveling on an ICBM effectively. Uh, what, what, what sort of armed scenario do you see developing uh, in Asia at that point? Uh, thank you, Look, the North Korea nuclear program is, is a major challenge. It's a major challenge that we face together with the Japanese. And it is a challenge uh, uh, that uh, requires us to, uh, to be vigilant uh, at the highest levels and to seek to promote uh, uh, both uh, negotiations with North Koreans, but also to uh, boost our deterrent capability uh, to make sure that we don't get to the kind of scenario that uh, uh, you outlined. Uh, I think uh, um, the Japanese have been very clear. They have no interest in developing nuclear weapons uh, whatsoever. But uh, the, the, the danger of uh, proliferation in the region uh, to other powers certainly uh, is, is a possibility. So it, that requires us to really uh, continue our engagement with North Korea, but to be absolutely firm, uh, boosting the deterrent uh, and boosting our missile defense, uh, working together with the Japanese, working together with the Republic of Korea and with our other allies to, to make sure that uh, such, an area, such a scenario uh, 
uh, doesn't come to fruition. Uh, thank you, Mr. Weinstein. Uh, Mr. Vida, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Burma uh, in the days following the last election when Aung San Suu Kyi's government was able to secure uh, a, a, some significant gains. Uh, and uh, they had a countdown on, or I guess a, a count up, so to speak, a ticker on the top of their newspapers saying that it's 50 days since this new government or 100 days since this uh, new government. And they were talking about the results. With the election coming up, has uh, has, has this government delivered the kinds of reforms or uh, changes that the people of Burma had hoped for uh, to to help ensure success going forward and away from uh, some of the military uh, aspects of elections? Well, thank you for that, Mr. Chairman. Uh, obviously, the, the Burmese will render their own judgment when they go to the polls on November 8th. Uh, my own assessment is that there, there had been, in fact, some early progress under the new civilian administration. Obviously, there were tremendous expectation. I think it's fair to uh, assess, though, that there had been some slowing on some of those reforms and some stagnation as well. I think we're concerned that we still see some constraints on religious freedom, on freedom of expression, uh, sometimes using uh, some of the military era or even colony era, era laws. Um, and uh, I think it's the, one of the key elements, I think, looking ahead at the election is, uh, will it be free and fair? Will it be inclusive? And will it ideally usher in, I think, renewed momentum on the democratic and governance path? Uh, there is no doubt that Burma, that any government in Burma faces uh, enormous challenges of poverty, of uh, ethnic strife, of uh, undue pressure from China next door. In that respect, I think Burma is really exhibit A for some of China's pernicious behavior. But it, I think it is our role and our commitment to help support some of those institutions and help help <coughs> progress towards uh, creating better governance and helping to meet the aspirations of all of Burma's people. And, and that, I think, is the expectation we can levy of any government, any civilian government in Burma. And uh, I think it then becomes our role to help assist it towards that goal. Thank you for that answer. I think one of the tools that we provided for the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, uh, within the Asia Reassurance, Reassurance Initiative Act for uh, Burma was a language similar to what we did in Africa with Power Africa. We created the Power Burma uh, provisions that, because, you know, conversations about uh, progress economically, uh, stable electricity, very important to Burma, and we can help bring that expertise from the United States. So I hope that's a, a tool that we will utilize. Uh, Ms. Thornhill, uh, to Singapore, uh, you know, obviously they are, they are a trade partner of the United States uh, and certainly uh, China, uh, incredibly important trade partner for Singapore as well. How does the United States assure that we are present and not allowing a, a tilt in the relationship uh, toward uh, toward China uh, versus the United States, but make sure that we're playing this on a keeping this on a level playing field in relationships? Um, thank you. And China's military maritime assertiveness in the South China Sea is a challenge for the region and troublesome for all the region. And it, the United States and, um, and Singapore both um, promote you know, a unified ASEAN and both look forward to a meaningful conclusion of the code of conduct uh, between ASEAN and China, uh, taking into account international law and of course, on close. It is in Singapore has openly stated that they respect the international law. In fact, of, of recent, um, 
there was a phone call between Secretary Pompeo and the foreign minister stating that, that they must respect international law, which is, of course, freedom of navigation and overflight with uh, unimpeded uh, lawful commerce. It is, Singapore is a city-state that is totally dependent on trade, as is America is also dependent, but they know their entire livelihood is, is important. And are, they're totally aware of the fact that $4 trillion worth of goods go by the South China Sea Isles, and one million of that is U.S. goods. So I believe that we would work together, I would work behind the scenes with the Singaporean government to help tilt them a bit more in towards our direction. Prime Minister Lee, in his Endangered Asian um, Century article, made a comment that it was time for Singapore to, I mean, for China, excuse me, to step up and not expect the privileges of a third world country anymore, to step up to global norms and abide by them, but not only abide, but respect them and promote them. Because China has prospered so much by these that it's only right for them to do. In this statement, I felt for the first time that Prime Minister Lee has tilted a bit towards America because he also stated what the U.S. has done for the region, how the U.S. has been open and sharing and given back in our, in our business relations. So I feel that I, I know that my presence there, if I'm confirmed, I would work very hard with the Singaporean authorities to help them understand is to take more of a stand of China's aggression South Sea. Thank you, Ms. Thornhill. And to uh, quickly, uh, because I know I'm running out of time here, uh, to Mr. Pratt uh, and Mr. Bethel, uh, the uh, obvious implications of China relationship, what it means in the two countries that you will be serving in, uh, mean a great deal. And the Asia Research Initiative Act provides additional tools to our Indo-Pacific uh, uh, ambassadors. Uh, what more tool could tool uh, in the toolbox could you use to help address concerns with China uh, in uh, in Panama, uh, in Djibouti? Mr. Pratt, Mr. Bethel, uh, I'll turn to Mr. Bethel first, then we'll go to Mr. Pratt, but quickly, please. thank you. Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, we have a number of tools in our toolbox. Uh, we have a, a, a newly repurposed DFC, formerly known as OPIC. Uh, we have the U.S. Exim Bank. We have trillions of, of dollars uh, in, in financial assets around the world uh, uh, that could be U.S. assets, pension funds and so forth, that could be deployed uh, to Panama. Uh, we have a, a robust private sector uh, and, uh, and we have uh, a very strong commercial business and cultural relationship with Panama. So I think if we were able to harness all of those, those, those tools, uh, uh, it, it, we could be uh, extremely successful. Not that we haven't been, and not that our relationship with Panama is uh, is strained at all. Uh, but but perhaps uh, there are ways to improve that that relationship. And and I will reiterate what I mentioned earlier with respect to China. Um, we should welcome competition, but it's just got to be fair. Places where you've seen China enter are those that, um, like Venezuela and others, are places that lack the rule of law and strong institutions. And uh, if, if I'm fortunate to get confirmed, I look forward to working with the Panamanians to strengthen all institutions uh, to help uh, American companies, American businesses, American financial capital, 
uh, and our own government institutions uh, to be as successful as possible for the benefit of ourselves, obviously, but also for the benefit of the Panamanian. Thank you, Mr. Bethel. Mr. Pratt, quickly. Uh, sir, thank you for the question. Um, as I said previously, uh, we are very concerned about the debt sustainability, and so uh, we'll continue to look at this uh, debt sustainability initiative. I think the Power Africa initiative is also very important. And uh, with our U.S. companies looking to get into that sector, two different companies are now, I think that can be important. And uh, I wouldn't rule out maybe looking at the uh, BUILD Act um, to look at the potential for infrastructure. We don't want China to be the only partner of choice uh, infrastructure in Africa. And thank you, Mr. Pratt. Senator Merkley, would you like to uh, continue with the second round? Yes, yes, I would. Uh, right. And Mr. Weinstein? I wanted to uh, ask you, until recently, you were the chairman of the Board of Governors of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, uh, which was uh, recently disbanded. And um, the in that effort, we hire foreign journalists who offer, often are involved in, in writing stories that are not complementary to their home countries, including Chinese journalists not doing complementary stories about China. Recently, the J-1 visas have not been renewed for those correspondents. Uh, with Some of them are within days of, of having to return to their home country and are at risk of potential abuse by their home governments. Should those J-1 visas be, be renewed and, and protect those foreign journalists who are serving our country? Well, thank you, Senator Merkley, for, uh, for the question. Um, let me note that uh, I have immense respect for the, the journalists uh, at the Voice of America and at the other entities uh, uh, of the uh, U.S. Agency for Global Media and had the honor of uh, chairing the board for several years. Um, these are dedicated professionals uh, and many of whom come from uh, challenging environments. Let me just note that uh, uh, this is a decision that uh, uh, the CEO and the, the new management of the agency uh, will make. Uh, the 2016-2017 uh, legislation creating a Senate-confirmed CEO for U.S. international broadcasting eliminated the Senate-confirmed bipartisan board. And so uh, this is a decision that uh, the new management will make. And uh, I have frankly not been in touch with the new management uh, uh, since they've taken over. Thank you. Okay, but that doesn't really answer the question. You were deeply involved in this. You know the role of these journalists. You know the risks they're at. And we here in Congress can play a role on encouraging the administration to uh, protect those journalists, not send them home. Uh, is that something you would encourage us to do? Look, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a challenging question. Uh, I would encourage Congress to play uh, the oversight role that uh, it has to and to do it in, in a diligent manner uh, and to do so uh, uh, particularly as you feel strongly on this issue. I think you're going to be a very good diplomat for the United States overseas. I just say to my colleagues of, of both parties, uh, let's take a, a, a look at this uh, because this, this is a, a real concern uh, for some who will be returned and possibly imprisoned or tortured for having served the United States in this journalistic capacity here in the, in the United States. I wanted to return uh, back, Ms. Thornhill, just to be absolutely clear, I know we were interrupted by some technical difficulties and, and also by time, uh, but it sounded like you were saying uh, you did not know much about the organization that you donated to. Uh, you're probably aware that James O'Keefe uh, hired a woman to try to discredit uh, sexual victims of sexual attacks, uh, victims of uh, Roy Moore. 
I'm assuming you did not you do not approve of that effort to undermine the reputation uh, or legitimacy of those those sexual assault victims, and are not an advocate for Project Veritas. It was more or less just an an almost an accidental donation. Is that is that the is is, is that accurate? Um, I went to I went to uh, support my friend. I knew nothing about. Um, Mr. O'Keefe or the organization, I was supporting an old friend as I would normally do because she asked me to come. Yes. I went and supported and donated and that was seven or eight years ago. I have not had any contact nor do I know anything what you're referring to, sir. And you, you do not support their use of fake videos or an effort to undermine sexual assault victims legitimacy? No, I'm a strong advocate for, in fact, as you know, from my background from human rights and the, of course the rights of women and um, that we're up, we promote everyone equal treatment for all. And Thank you. I, I just wanted to help you put that on the record since it's, 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 it's been raised and we can set the, clear that up and set that aside. Uh, Mr. Vajda, uh, 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 you know, I'm very concerned about the circumstances in, in Burma as many of my colleagues have raised it as you, as you know from our previous conversation, I, I led a congressional delegation uh, to go and try to uh, visit uh, the um, uh, areas in, in which uh, Muslims are held uh, and to look at the villages that were burned. Um, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had invited the world to come and see and said they had nothing to hide and then they, they blocked the world from, from seeing those sites. Will you ask to be able to go to those sites yourself in your, your position once confirmed? Uh, thank you for that. Uh, question, ranking member, and appreciate your interest in and pursuing your own direct ability to observe what had happened in northern Rakhine State. My understanding is that the, the U.S. Embassy uh, regularly seeks access uh, to those areas, not just for themselves, but importantly for humanitarian agencies. Humanitarian access is critical and also for the media so that, uh, as you note, the world can can see what's actually happening. Um, I understand, as you also noted, that, that that access is often denied. It would absolutely be my uh, intent to be able to get there and have members of my team get there if I'm confirmed and if I arrive in Burma, to be able to see for ourselves and to be able to report back accurately to, to Washington and, and to use what we see to be able to inform our policy so we can be as effective as possible and having the greatest influence in working towards our goals of, of, the, of human rights and return of the Rohingya under safe, dignified conditions, and really working towards the long-term needs of that community as identified by the Anon Commission, which we support. Thank you. I think uh, uh, even though it's likely you'll be denied, I think it's important to uh, ask uh, for, for access um, because it is a horrific situation and, and we shouldn't let it, it continues. <laughs> Situations continue. The, uh, the camps, the internally displaced person camps, are, are still a, a, a horrific situation for so many who are trapped in them. Uh, the denial of, of citizenship, the removal of former citizenship, the, the assaults and the abuse. Uh, and it's important uh, that we continue to stand up for people who are treated in, in that manner. Right. I wanted to uh, also encourage you to press hard on the coming elections and try to make sure that everyone who had been eligible to vote in previous elections uh, we'll be allowed to uh, vote in this next election, including the Rohingya. 
Thank you. Thank you, Ranking Member. I share that goal. I think ensuring that this process, the election is as inclusive as possible and actually can speak to the political needs and interests of, of all the people of Burma will be hugely important. It's often pointed out that despite the gravity of the situation, the U.S. never did the process of declaring it a, a genocide. Should the U.S. complete that process? Senator, uh, I know you raised this also with Secretary Pompeo in his recent testimony. He has said that our, our main goal is to change behavior on the ground, to promote accountability and justice, and to avoid any recurrence of these widespread atrocities. And he has made clear that, that we will review our actions uh, with that goal in mind. I can simply uh, affirm personally that uh, my intention, if I'm confirmed, would be to arrive in Burma, assess the situation, uh, collect information, collect, gather the advice of my colleagues and and make my best recommendations back to Washington, how we can achieve the goals of accountability and justice. Well, uh, thank you. I think it does undermine our credibility that we chose, despite the recommendation of numerous international organizations, never declared to be a genocide. Uh, it uh, seems to have been an effort uh, not to uh, offend the government of, of Burma. I just think we have to speak truth to the situations. When genocide occurs, we need to call it out and call it what it is. And point of the United States has not done so, and I, I hope you'll advocate for doing so once you evaluate the circumstances on the ground. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you, Senator Merkley, and thanks to all of the witnesses today for attending the hearing uh, and for your willingness to serve and for providing us with your testimony and answers today. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business Thursday. That's tomorrow, August 6th, including for members to submit questions for the record. I kindly ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible, and your responses will be made a part of the record. The thanks of the committee. This hearing is now adjourned.